0: Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. right here Laisha Tyler. Troy Corquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast.
1: Ow! What's up? What is up? I'm your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. Joining me from Chicago, Josh Modell, executive editor. What is up? Hey, hey, man. How has quarantine treated you this week? Uh,
2: That's a good question. You know, one day I'm fine and I'm taking a walk. The next day I'm like,
1: should I shave my head? (laughs) Yeah. I debated shaving my head yesterday. If I'm being honest, I can't take the hair in my eyes anymore. It's too much. Too much. Uh,
2: But if you know what, if that's the worst of our problems, I guess we're doing okay. Although I guess only one of us
1: actually had it. Yes, that's true. That's true. Uh, you are staying inside to not catch it. I am staying inside to not risk infecting other people. So here we both are. I've been spending a lot of time after my kid goes to sleep dropping in on live streams on Instagram, Josh. I've caught the Tweedy show a few times this week, Jeff yep. Tweedy and family show. I caught the uh, epic hip hop battle DJ Premier versus RZA. I spent three hours with them on that which I just loved, and, uh, and I've caught a couple of Frankie Cosmo's Friday night broadcasts. She's doing that every Friday with special guests. So this has been a very tough time in life, but a veritable bonanza of Instagram lives. Josh, are you watching or reading or, or in any other way consuming anything of interest right now? Uh, I've actually been really into this Hulu show called Devs. Oh, I don't know it. It,
2: Well, it reminded me a little bit of George Saunders in that it's kind of this dystopian sci-fi thing with a real moral message, but also because it stars Nick Offerman, who is one of the main voices on the Lincoln and the Bardo audiobook, which is this incredible, like, seven-hour, 150-person audiobook that includes Offerman, David Sedaris, Keegan-Michael Key, Megan Mullally, Bill Hader, Jeff Tweedy, weirdly it's incredible i mean if you've never experienced george saunders before i don't think i'd normally recommend this for an author but i think that audiobook is a
1: great way in totally well i am certainly grateful to all the artists that have helped me for at least a brief moment forget that i'm in quarantine amen you know what else helped me forget it tell me today's show it's a good one working on this was such a pleasure This is our first ever TalkHouse podcast to feature two authors in conversation, George Saunders and Dana Spiotta. Yeah, with George Saunders' new short story in The New Yorker, he just appeared on Cheryl
2: Stray's new podcast Sugar Calling, and all of us having a little more time to read at the moment,
1: Uh, we figured we'd share this talk from the vault. Yeah, this was a live talk that was originally recorded in early 2018, we collaborated with the wonderful Murmur Theater and Community Bookstore, both in Brooklyn, on this fantastic episode. Listeners will recognize those names from other episodes we've done with them, including Jeff Tweedy with Abby Jacobson. That was the talk they did when Jeff released his Wilco memoir, as well as Judd Apatow and David Duchovny celebrating Gary Shanley. Yeah. And we should let people know that
2: Community Bookstore is still open and has free deliveries during social isolation.
1: Yes. Yes. They are open for business, not to go in the store, of course, but you can order anything you want from the comfort and safety of your home, and they'll ship it out via free media mail. So definitely support them. Fantastic bookstore that's been around since the 70s. We won't give you too much
2: biographical information about Dana and George here because the talk kicks off with a live intro from Michael Miller of Book Forum Magazine, who does that for us. It then goes into great readings by both Dana and George and closes with an audience Q&A. There's a bunch of great stuff in here.
1: There really is. We get to hear about Saunders' process writing Lincoln and the Bardo, and as both of these writers are teachers, the art of teaching aspiring authors, including the perfect praise-to-blame ratio. Yeah, and they talk about sort of broader things, like why it's important to read fiction right now, and of course, just why people write. They also get into trying to write in the style of 90s chat rooms. We hear about Jesus, the temple-trashing tough guy. And dreaming of... (laughs)
2: <laughs> Should we roll it? Yeah, let's hear it.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Miller. I'm an editor at Book Forum magazine, and I'm just incredibly happy and honored to be here tonight at Murmur's first installment of Lit. I think the pairing of George Saunders and Dana Spiotta is perfect for the inaugural event. These two authors are so original that I hesitate to draw too many comparisons between them, aside from the fact that they are two of America's truly great writers. But when I do consider them together, I do see, or at least I think I see, some general similarities. I think that they both create characters who are, for a variety of reasons, cut off from other people. Two examples I can think of right off the bat is Saunders' amazing short story, uh, Mother's Day, in which a character's buried resentments sort of keep her emotionally isolated from the people that she is around. Another thing that comes to mind is Nick from Dana Spiotta's uh, Stone Arabia, this rocky musician who, he's a self-mythologizer, and he sort of obsessively chronicles this rock star life and it's almost entirely made up. And I think about the characters around them who sort of amid all these distortions try to come to some sort of understanding of who these people actually are. Some other similarities are that both of these writers give us a feel for what it's like to be living within the contours of American culture and history. There is Lincoln, obviously, and Saunders' Lincoln and the Bardo. They're the anti-war activists on the run in Spiota's Ether document. And I think what especially strikes me about both of these authors is that even when they show us states of isolation, they don't take this isolation as a given or as an unchangeable state. I think they suggest that even though human connection can be distorted and fragile, it is still possible and worthwhile. It's not always in the ways that you'd expect. They both write about love hate, family, and the interplay between fantasy and reality. They both show us the complicated business of expressing oneself, and also the challenges of truly seeing other people. These are big themes, and the authors don't offer simple solutions. Instead, they face the questions they raise with great attention, intricate, and innovative ways of telling their stories, and just the right dose of comedy and the absurd. I don't wanna sound flip or too much like one of the sloganeers that Saunders makes fun of in some of his stories, but the last thing I wanna say about these authors and about Murmur's lit series is this, they really go for it. Please welcome Dana Spiotta and George Saunders.
4: Thank you, Michael. That was really nice. was really thoughtful. And Janet, thank you for inviting us to be at the first literary event here. I'm going to read from Innocence and Others, and then George is going to read, and then we're going to have a conversation. I'm going to read from the beginning of the book. The book starts with an essay that a character has written about how she became uh, a filmmaker. It's a sort of an origin story. And so she's looking back from her... 40s to when she was young. Pretty soon as you're reading it, you get the sense that this is really an apocryphal story, that there's lots of clues that it may not be true. Um, The part that I'm at, is gonna read from, is she's going to go to her parents' house and tell them a lie about how she wants to go make movies, even though she really does wanna go make movies, but she's really gonna go live with um, her new boyfriend who seems like he might be Orson Welles. So, um, so what you need to know is it's 1984, and she comes from the very privileged precincts of West Los Angeles. I think that's all you need to know. We lived in a recently built, very large one-level house that hugged the edge of a shrubby canyon. Sliding glass doors in every room faced the landscape yard, the pool, and the hazy view beyond the pool of other houses with pools on the opposite side of the canyon. Some of the walls in our house were lined with suede panels and other walls were lined with mirrors. My parents liked the effect of juxtaposing contemporary surfaces with an elaborate collection of French and Italian antique furniture. My mother considers herself a person with interior design skills, or at least a very strong sense of her own taste. And I admit that it worked in a way that felt deliberate. I didn't mind looking at the fine Louis XIV gill-painted wood table set unexpectedly in front of the palm trees and cactuses visible through the glass panels. But I myself would have preferred a Mediterranean-style craftsman bungalow decorated in art deco tubular furniture with the chromed curves and the squeak of leather promising a life of gliding modernity. That's me, all right, out-of-date modernity with its edge of future promise unfulfilled, even failed. I so loved the clothing style of the 1930s that my prom dress was a slim, high-waisted vintage men's suit rented from Western costume, something a minor player wore once in a long forgotten silvery black and white film. But my mother was different from me. She liked things hyper new or very antique. None of this freighted recent past for her. Vintage, she would say when we went into the expensive retro stock stores that now lined dotted uh, Melrose Avenue that's what they call this attic junk, or she would make a sound of hard pushed air in her throat, which I came to understood meant that she had a similar item once and had happily discarded it years ago. She had no tolerance for the sentimental revisiting of the 1950s that became so popular during my grade school years. She never understood our desire to dress up in sock hop outfits for 50s days and felt that watching Grease was ridiculous, not to mention inaccurate, i.e. the 50s weren't fun, by the way. My father did not have such strong feelings, but he went along with my mother in matters of decor and in almost everything else. I sat them both down together, but it was to her that I addressed my explanation of why I was leaving immediately. I told her that I planned to take a road trip with my friend Carrie. I picked Carrie because she was in fact spending the summer driving across the country with her boyfriend. I told my parents my plan as I sat on our cream velvet empire couch and I sat on the rug in front of them holding a can of Diet Dr. Pepper and taking frequent sips. The sips helped me buy time as I was making this up as I spoke, or at least partly. The general ideas taking shape on the drive over, but the detailed contours of the plan coming to life as I formed the sentences between sips. There's a film collective in upstate New York, I said. Sip. I was thinking of the great director Nicholas Ray and the weird upstate New York collective he formed with the students in the 70s after he'd been forgotten by Hollywood. I have always been attracted to afterlives, codas, postscripts, discursive asides, and especially misdirection. Note this. I had never seen the film Nicholas Ray made with the students, but it was already legendary, at least to me. Where in upstate New York... My mother's brow furrowed. She was raised in Long Island, but she had developed a West Coast revulsion for the extreme temperatures of New York, and her upstate seemed like a tundra of snow and forgotten factory brick. I hadn't considered that I needed to be more specific than upstate. I thought of Syracuse, Buffalo, Rochester. I thought of Troy, Albany, Kingston. I thought of Binghamton, where Nicholas Ray taught, but that isn't what I said to them. Gloversville. They have an abandoned glove factory that gets used as a soundstage. It's incredibly cheap, and we have easy access to woods or lakes or old houses for locations, I said, and took another long swig of my soft drink. I was addicted to the slightly cooked peppermint chemical taste of Diet Dr. Pepper. The flavor had a wave of sweet followed by something bitter and then something metal. It was so close to repulsive, and yet I had grown to crave it. I tried to figure it out nearly every time I drank it. Is it marshmallow or peppermint? Is it a cola with a fruit flavor, with an undertaste of saccharin? I drank it constantly. Sip, sip. A film shoot in Gloversville, New York. A collective, like an artist commune, so we can share equipment and ideas. In Gloversville, New York, sure, why not? The town came to me from a coffee table photo book of old movie theaters, the Glove Theater. It was a former vaudeville venue whose exterior sign was renovated in 1939 in high Art Deco. Perhaps the glove and both the town name and the sign made it stick in my head, and then it popped out while the soda sip still tingled my tongue. Later, when I finally saw the place in real life, my eyes filled and blurred. It was a decrepit theater in grave disrepair on a dying street full of empty storefronts. The door was open. I stepped in. A ghost town with a ghost theater, yet the former grandness still evident, the gold wallpaper peeling, the velvet seats in attendant rows, though ripped and ruined. Why did I cry? Not because it was a wreck, but because I felt the history. I knew cinema is everywhere, and to discover it in the most obscure places made me believe that it mattered. Its decay only meant there was room for me somehow. That is why I cried. I was full of joy and excitement. Sounds ambitious, my father said. Ambition pleased him. He was an entertainment lawyer, but he never talked about his work with me. He loved, though, to talk about me and my work. He encouraged me to believe that my particular possibilities had no limits. And one strategy he apparently had for conveying that idea was not giving me any limits, financial or otherwise. What's the name of it, my mother said. Of the film collective? I sipped my diet Dr. Pepper, swallowed. SpectroCore, I said. Both parents tilted their heads like they hadn't heard. Spectro Corps, like the Peace Corps, the Marine Corps. No one spoke. I was, a, I was about to go on, but I saw my father smile and begin to nod, so I made myself shut up. Where will you live, my mother asked. I'll stay in the collective's apartment so we can work all the time. My mother pursed her lips. You're going to make films, that's great, my father said. That's what she wants to do, she should do it. You're going to make films with Carrie, my mother said. My mother loved my best friend, Carrie. It's ridiculous how an adult decides to take to one of your friends a bit of eye contact and a thank you from a teenager is a kind of miracle, I suppose. (laughs) Yes, Carrie and others. They looked at me and leaned in. They were saying yes, but they expected some detail. So out it came, inventing, as I had just learned to do, a story about myself. A lie of invention, a lie about yourself, should not be called a lie. It needs a different word. It is maybe a fabule, a kind of wish story, something almost true, a mist of the possible where nothing was yet there, with elements both stolen and invented, which is to say invented, and it has to feel more dream than lie as you speak it. I could see it ribbon from my head like an image in a zoetrope. We're remaking lost and never completed films like The Apostle of Vengeance by William S. Hart. The Dream Girl by Cecil B. DeMille, The Serpent by Raoul Walsh, The Eternal Mother by D.W. Griffith, maybe every Alice Guy Blanchet short made before 1920. There are a huge number of famous silent films that don't exist anymore. The Nitrate Ignited, or they were just trashed, destroyed, only titles, descriptions, and some stills survive. I want to make these films and act, but also interpret, because what reenactment doesn't involve an interpretation? The films as described, I will make them. That is a summer project of the collective. See, I made it up on the spot and I already wanted to do it. But you will be in New York City by the time school begins, of course, my mother said. I was supposed to start at NYU in the fall. Of course, I said, and maybe I believed it. Later, as I packed a suitcase in my room, my father knocked on my door. Did I need anything? Anything at all? I looked at him an Eclair ACL 16mm camera, 16mm film, a Niagara 4 STC, a good microphone, a MagnaSync Moviola upright editing console, a Betacam video camera, a Sony VTR tape editing deck, and video cassettes. But I wasn't sure what I would do with the equipment, so I planned to return to the Brentwood house with the pool and the huge filmmaker. My father wrote me a check for these things, trusting me to buy them, and I intended to buy what I described to him. I cashed the check and stored the money in a sock and a side pocket of my suitcase. Someday I would get my gear, but now I wasn't, as it happened, ready to make films. I was still just thinking, wishing, hoping, pretending to make films."
0: Spectra I want to start that. Thank you so much for coming out. It's great to see you. I mean, I can't really see you, but it's great to be in the same room with you. See you later, whatever. Um, I thought I would read something from 10th of December because Lincoln has got a lot of death in it. And then I re- realized that this story has a lot of death in it too. So uh, this is from a story called The Semco Girl Diaries, and it's... Um, The only explanation is it's kind of a a middle-aged guy who's keeping a diary. And as I did when our kids were little, I tried to do that. And I was so tired that I would end up sort of omitting words and getting rid of articles and using plus signs and equal signs. And uh, so this is kind of his um, brain dump at the end of a a couple of days. September 30th. Sorry for silence. Crazy thing happened this week. Monday... Todd Grassberger died. Future readers know Todd. Have I mentioned? Probably have not mentioned. Todd, not close friend, just work colleague. Todd and I had running joke. Re- I had never returned FireWire. I had borrowed. In fact, was company FireWire, not his. He knew. I knew he knew. It was just our joke. Day started out fine. Beautiful Indian summer day. Fire drill in morning. Whole complex emptied into outdoor courtyard. Day so beautiful, no one minded. Everyone lounging on berms, urging caution. Fun to see people of different companies, like seeing members of different tribes. Nabro Max equal nerds. Calculating temperature needed to destroy by fire entire complex. Urged equal design firm, has many hippies, prettiest girls, many urged folks lying on back on berms, looking up at clouds, one guy playing small wood flute. When all clear sounded, everyone booed, all filed sadly back inside. Then at two, word rippled through office, Todd dead. Had heart attack at dry cleaner. <laughs> no, go ahead. You be you. <laughs> Had a heart attack at dry cleaner just now during lunch. All afternoon, no one working. Everyone's stunned, milling around, trying to process fact that Todd equal dead. <laughs> Under Todd's desk, pair of hiking boots. Against one wall, walking stick Todd used to take on lunchtime walks in woods. Weird sun shower around three. Linda Hurtney, it's like a final goodbye from Todd. (laughs) Linda, equal nut. Once claimed Crow on ledge was reincarnation of her dead husband. Said she could tell by way Crow's head was cocked disapprovingly at large lunch she was eating. (laughs) Then storm over, parking lot glistening. All evening, found myself looking afresh at Pam, kids. Everything suddenly precious. Said prayer before dinner. Do not usually pray before dinner, but tonight, held hands, prayed. Prayed we'd be grateful for our good fortune, grateful for each other. Prayed we would remember that various ups, downs we may experience as family equal small bumps in road compared with this. Prayed for Todd, prayed for Todd's family. Just nights ago, Todd was in own house, doing whatever Todd did at night. Taking change out of pockets, having laugh with kids, petting dog, thinking of future, tossing dirty clothes and hamper. Where is Todd tonight? October 1st. Todd Grassberger funeral today at Ukrainian church downtown. Todd apparently from humble roots. Priest equal long-haired guy in cassock. Sings, chants, whole service in Ukrainian from memory. As he chants, paces, cassock rope swings. Scary guy. Very intense. Sermon. Why this surprising? (laughs) Did you think you were going to live forever? Only difference between you, sitting there anticipating the rest of your day, and Todd in coffin, bound for eternal home in cold earth, is heartbeat feel that people in your chest that is thin line between you and grave so why do you live like you are eternal that foolish you are fools this scary this not scary this truth this reality shouts shall we wake up shall we Everyone's staring big-eyed at Priest, except usual congregants who seem to have heard all before. Priest goes on, which of us will die tonight? Do we think he's being facetious? That shows we are dopes. Any one of us could die tonight, die right now. Suddenly come up short of breath, keel over in pew, be with Todd in earth in wink of eye. Suddenly from downstairs kitchen, smell of roast beef. Happy chatter from church ladies down in kitchen. Smell of roast beef plus sound of pots clanking, plates being set out, equal appealing. People shifting in pews due to amazing smell of beef. <laughs> Todd's two brothers come to lectern, make tributes. Older brother, Todd Sweet. Sweet. Todd, funny Todd, a powerful force in his life. We'll never forget, wonder, that was Todd. Younger brother, yes, Todd, super strong person. Todd equal bull. Although Todd could be somewhat firm, Todd did younger brother much good in long run (laughs) by teaching him how to stand up for self. That is to say, having been pushed around by Todd, throughout entire childhood (laughs) nothing can now phase younger brother i.e. no bully in outside world will ever be equal of Todd but Todd's so great Todd the best Todd's so smart so good-looking no wonder Todd's mom plus dad always treated him younger brother like afterthought but but Todd's so caring so perceptive Todd understood this was sometimes console younger brother by saying that he, younger brother, was perfectly fine in own way. (laughs) Often just before a breaking pact they had made re-Wednesday night being younger brother's night to borrow dad's car, thereby ruining younger brother's chance to see girl he really liked, possible love of life, girl he eventually lost to some dope from Selden, dope whose own older brother apparently more inclined than Todd to give his younger brother a decent shot at family car, Todd's younger brother, breathless, pauses at lectern. Can't seem to stop self. Plunges ahead. But Todd great. (laughs) Todd so great. Todd will surely be missed. Todd taught everyone in family important lesson. Although person might be strong, bellicose, ambitious, slightly blind to needs of others. (laughs) Still, that does not mean person not greatest, most amazing brother ever who occasionally, as if to spite self, might suddenly, surprising all, do some reasonably thoughtful thing. (laughs) Younger brother, seemingly perplexed by own tribute, (laughs) then led away from lectern by scowling older brother, hissing something in undertone. Todd's widow approaches lectern, can't seem to speak, three little girls clinging to her skirt, Widow hands the microphone to smallest girl. Smallest girl, bye daddy. Lunch good. Lunch beyond good. Funeral so sad. Lunch equal heaven. Eat three roast beef sandwiches in row off paper plate. Outside, yellow tree blowing in wind. Single yellow leaf blows in through open basement window. Watch it come down, lander my shoe. Think, life beautiful, so glad I'm not dead. (laughs) If when I die, do not want Pam lonely, want her to remarry, have full life, as long as new husband is nice guy, gentle guy, religious guy, very caring plus good to kids, but kids not fooled. Kids prefer dead dad, i.e. me, <laughs> to a religious guy. Pale, boring, religious guy <laughs> with no oomph Wh- who wears weird sweaters and is always a little sad due to cannot get boner <laughs> due to physical ailment. Death very much on my mind tonight future reader can it be true that i will die that pam kids will die as awful why were we put here so inclined to love when end of our story equal death that harsh that cruel do not like note to self try harder in all things to be better person thanks <laughs> Wow, that was great. Well, to you, too. Good to see you again. Good to
4: see you again. We
0: did this event, or a similar event, a year ago um, to the day in San Francisco. Yeah, so yeah.
4: when uh, Lincoln and the Bardo came out, we did this event in San Francisco. And uh, so how'd it go? Did it go okay?
0: No, nah, it's was a <laughs> stupid book. <laughs> no, it was good. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, congratulations yeah.
4: on the Man Booker Prize. Thanks. thanks. Yeah, yeah. Um... So I thought maybe I would just start out asking you some questions about Lincoln and the Bardo and we can kind of go off from there. Does that sound okay? Yeah, okay. Um, How many of you have read Lincoln and the Bardo? I won't look. Raise your hand. Okay, so like I would say half the people, okay. So it's an amazing book and I think it feels even more relevant now than it did even a year ago. Mm. One of the things that's really remarkable about it is that it has a very interesting structure It's a historical novel. It takes place in the 1860s, takes place during the Lincoln administration, but one part of it takes place in a graveyard and it has ghosts. And they go back in history. Some of them have been there for hundreds of years, right? And Uh some of them have died recently and they're all there together. So that part of the novel is multiple voices. And the plot or the narrative of it is that Lincoln's son dies and it all takes place during the one night when he goes to visit his son's dead body. Yeah. So that's quite a bit right there, yeah, 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 and then it's intercut with historical documents, some of them real, some of them contemporary with the time with the 1860s and some of them from now, yep. and those also tell the narrative of the son's death, right? And there's a lot of white
0: space. That was the other... Yeah, there's lots of white space. But,
4: okay, so my question is, how did you come to that structure? I know you have said in the past that your form comes out of your attempt to solve some problems in the writing. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about that, how you got that shape?
0: And I love that, that like, probably 90% of you are writers. So that makes... We can just talk technical stuff, right? The the thing that's been interesting about talking about this is that you realize that if you were really going to answer it, I think these... Formal solutions. I don't know if this is true for you, but it seemed like they were kind of running on five tracks at once over the last 20 years. Kind of, I mean, you can give a simple answer in an interview, but in truth, there were four or five things happening at once. And the big, there were two that I kind of had forgotten about actually. One was that back in the 90s, I tried to write a book that would look like chat lines. I mean, were oh, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were just happening. So I, and I just liked the way it looked and the way that an answer would be, you know, ungrammatical and delayed by several pages and all that. And then the other part that I really, like even when we talked, I don't know if I had made this realization, but I did a story for GQ in a homeless camp in Fresno.
4: Yeah, I remember that story. Yeah,
0: I wrote a nonfiction piece about it, but it didn't really get out of me, you know? Right. And that's the Bardo, actually, that place. Mm-hmm all these homeless people who are kind of like repetitively telling me their story even when I've heard it 20 times and they're ch- they're lying changing it from time to time yeah. they're constrained in a physical environment so I think those two things were, were part of it and then stuff like uh, David Shields' Reality Hunger was okay. on my mind. Uh, that George Plimpton book, E.D., and the Ken Burns movies, too. Right. So, really, literally, those five things were all happening at once. Yeah, we, and they kinda... we talked
4: about how it, it did remind me of the Ken Burns movie because we find out the names after, right. which is you hear the voice and then you find out who's speaking. That seemed very Ken Burns to me in a and weird way. It was. <laughs>
0: and the thing about that was, I mean, if you're a writer, you know, that, at least for me, one of the things that is a really good clue is irritation. Like uh, something you hit apart in a text and if you're looking at your mind honestly you're like, that sucks, I don't know why and I know intellectually it has to be that way but it sucks, so with this book for a long time all of the ghosts had the attributions after right. and the history bits had the attributions on the top, or, or rather the, go- the ghosts were at the top and the history was at the bottom right. and every time I'd read that it just chafed a little bit, like, eh, so disorganized you know, my OCD right. was offended so there's just one day where the whole work was just to flip all of them to the bottom Right. And it felt so good that now the whole book would look the same, you know, like, do you have like any kind yeah, of visual? No,
4: it's weird because when you were joking about the white space, you weren't really joking because there is some way that it feels, especially, maybe this is true with short stories too, but it seems that you don't want a symmetry that makes it seem too neat. Right. But there does have to be a spatial logic to it. And some of it actually is the way it looks on the page. Yeah. And, and there's a part of me that always wants to have that certain amount of white space. When I see like a, a Thomas Bernhardt novel or something where it's just text and there's no... I, it, it makes me want to die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a certain amount of self-encouragement. Like when I, when I was... You know, this is a first novel and it was in, I was like intimidated by it. And so when you thought, I, George, give you, George, permission to do a two-line chapter... Right. And you know, part, part of your mind says, well, that's cheap. And you're like, yeah, okay, but it's, I'm doing it, you know, yeah. and, and then, because if it, as long as it, I think if you can go into your writing room with some amount of joy and not fear, that's the whole, for me, that's the whole game, you know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and whatever cheats you have to do. I'm
4: just gonna do it.
0: I'm doing it. It's my book. It's my you're fucking back. book. I can do
4: it. Um, I wanna ask you about that too. Oh, you know, there's a, um, in As I Lay Dying, there's a two sentence chapter. Yeah. My mother is a fish. Right. <laughs> And do you think Faulkner said, I'm just going to do it? I think he did say that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, okay, so 10th of December came out, and it was hugely successful, and it was on the bestseller list, and you could have just kind of relaxed for a while, but you dove right into this book, and you hadn't written a novel before, and you didn't just write a big George Saunders story, you did this radical revisioning, I mean, really like nothing else. Mm. So... How do you have the courage to do that? What do you tell yourself that enables you to do that? Because it's, I mean, there must have been a lot of pressure on you, you, you know? know
0: the, the, you know what happened? This is weird. I, I don't know if you read reviews, but I do. <laughs> yeah, I, I do, even if, you know. But there's somebody like, with 10th of December, somebody in England, uh, not that I've looked him up or anything, but he said, uh, <laughs> he said kind of like, ah, it begins. Saunders is now repeating himself. And he said it about 10th of December. and. I'm like, fuck you, I'm not. I, everyone here says I'm not, so, you know, but it, but, but, but that, gets in your, that gets in your head a little bit, you know, and so I had had this Lincoln idea bouncing around for 20 years, and I always thought, oh, that'd be so great, and then I had this feeling that I didn't have what it would take, like it, it was a little too earnest or would have to be too lyrical or too right. serious, something like that, some suite of things that, you know how it is when you write your first book, it feels like you became a different person briefly and you discarded a lot of your early writer tricks to do this one kind of purified thing, then you're kind of loath to give it up because you're afraid you'll revert, you know. So when I was younger, I had a lot of modernist tendencies that were kind of sloppy.
4: Yeah, I remember you telling me about your first book that you wrote, your first novel.
0: Oh, yeah, the, La Boda de Eduardo. That was, that was, <laughs> it was a 700-page book about a trip to Mexico that I And I mean, it's, it, I, I, my wife and I were broke, you know, and, and we had two kids, and I just said, I came back from that wedding and said, you are sitting on a gold mine. This is going to be great. And I spent all this time writing it, and a year, you know, of staying up late at night and working, and then gave it to her, and she just, she read about four pages and just went like, <laughs> uh, yeah, So that's, that scared me off of that a lot. But, but anyway, so I'm, you know, this book, 10th of December is done and I'm 50, whatever. And I just thought, man, if, you know, I just had the feeling that I was reaching a dangerous crossroads where I was going to concede that I didn't have the chops to do the thing I wanted most to do. And then I actually said, you know, if you drop dead right now, people would say he did pretty good for a kid from Chicago. So maybe I could just take a chance of messing it up. And then, if it didn't work out, I could just quit and call it a lost year. But it was, I mean, it was, I kind of joke about it. But like we, you're
4: just saying, I would just throw it away. At uh, the yeah, end of the yeah. Year.
0: I, I actually gave myself kind of a contract. Like, you're going to try this for six months until this book comes out. And then, if it's no good, just don't tell anybody, and it's nothing lost. And right. I tend to be kind of a Pollyannish. Person, but I definitely felt if I didn't go that way, I was going to maybe get in trouble, kind of spiral into repetition or something. So it was—it was. I don't think it was courage, but I didn't want that—that <laughs> that English guy to be right. I guess. That yeah. Would, <laughs> yeah.
4: But yeah. it's so—it was so ambitious too, and audacious, and succeeds. So I think one of the things that I thought was really amazing is that you. I think this was true of Colson Whitehead too, is that you have this voice, this contemporary voice, and then by writing something in the past, you dislocate that voice, but it's still you that comes through, but you have this new constraint, you know? And so I think I noticed it particularly when you got to um, Bevins, who's got those like really lavish compound nouns and his phrasal adjectives and his alliterations. And some of these things that you would never do in your contemporary writing because you're doing this sort of this Victorian, you know, these, these um, historical guys you could kind of unleash alliterations that you would never have right, used. Right, because Joyce had never been born yet, never yet. Use, so, Yes, yeah. because very... So Bevan was anticipating so, Joyce. So that must have been really fun.
0: It was really fun because I have all of that built up Hemingway, Cormac McCarthy, uh, Faulkner love that I could never use in a comic contemporary piece. But right. here you could kind of slip it in a little bit. But yeah. did, when you... This, this is true what you said. There's something about um, destabilizing the stuff that comes natural to you. Maybe at later in career it's more necessary because you've kind of used up your turf, right, you know? Right,
4: right. Because you, I think when you've written a lot, you feel like an imitation of yourself sometimes. Yeah. Like you're like, oh, I always use the qualifier. You know, like you get this, like this weird editorial voice that's really from within because it's something like that rhythm feels familiar right. or something. And, and maybe that's one thing, I, reason why I like to think about novel structure. Because I think once I have the shape of something, it's much easier to make it
0: work. So, so you actually would construct a shape pre-book no, or no. kind of during? Um,
4: no, what I do is I, I like to think about the shape a lot as I'm writing. I'm writing pretty blind. But so it's only after I've written for about a year that I'll start to get a s- start thinking about the shape and I'll start making little spatial drawings of what I think it would be. And, and I do have a t- an attraction to symmetry like this, you know, I'll, I like codas and I like preludes and I like short chapters and I like having chapter titles. That's really, it's more fun for me to write chapter titles than it is to write prose. You can, you can like I whole, can just do whole a whole book, book of just and, a, t- like a
0: chapter title. You know, uh, Juno Diaz Diaz used to teach for us. And he said that when he was writing writing the the collection Drown, which is so brilliant, he used to dream of the stories uh, and they looked almost like balloon animals, like shapes of different colors. The different shapes and colors were things that he knew were, you know, sort of units. And sometimes he'd, in the dream, he'd see a beautiful symmetry with some goiter on it. Right. and he'd know that that green goiter had to come out the next day and could actually go to the text, and he knew what he meant in his wow. dream. Yeah, that's kind of wow. cool. Wow, no, I don't yeah. have that. I don't either. I just dream of a big goiter, and that's it.
4: <laughs> so the way I think about structure is, so you know how when you're reading a, like a Joy Williams sentence, she does some kind of swerve where she'll just go on another plane or another register that you're not expecting, like birds will come out of the toilet or something like yeah. that, and you're... You're just startled by the right. time where she goes. So I like the idea that when you get to the end of a novel, so you have a sense of the structure that gives you a. Uh, for your example in your book, you get the sense of okay, he's going to switch between these two things, right? But of course, once you get that sense, it gets kind of the reader gets kind of dull. It's dull. So then you have to swerve within it. And in your case, you do the things you're you're escalating the stakes, okay. and you're also in the historical section. You're putting in some made-up stuff, too. So meanwhile, the reader's like, oh, there's some tricky stuff over here. So you keep escalating the form stuff as well as the plot and the narrative and the characters. And then what I like is when you get to the end of a book you can't really see the shape until you're on the last page. And then you click and you can see the whole shape. Like you can apprehend the whole thing. So then it's almost like a three-dimensional sculpture that you could walk around. And all the pieces are a whole, right? So you only really understand the whole book when you get to the end. And it should make you want to go back and read it again. And When
0: I read Innocence, that's what happened to me is I kept waiting for the two stories to cross. And it's kind of like you are going, wow, she's waiting a long time. And you're like, I know that. And then boom, you know. <laughs> and then the second time I read it, it seemed to happen sooner. Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. And
4: you sort of see more of the connections than you did the Right, But first.
0: that takes a lot of, I mean, as you say, courage. It takes a, a lot of, I think it takes a lot of confidence in your readers also to know that there are people out there who will, who will track it, you know, and get it.
4: Right. Or it's a lot of arrogance to think anyone would read a book twice, right? Yeah. 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 I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the process stuff. So... George and I teach together at Syracuse University in the MFA program. And George is really famous for making people revise and famous for making them physically cut up stories, right, and rearrange them. Can you talk to me, when you're talking to a student, let's pretend we're in this, in George's elite third-year workshop, which I wish I could take, six students that get to work with George. What do you say to them when they present a story that's good but not great?
0: Well, basically, I appeal to the part of them that came there to be great, because nobody becomes an artist to be interesting, you know, or like that was really yeah. I read your book, you know that. <laughs> so I just kind of you know I, I it's good kind of ass- you wrote it. Yeah, yeah yeah yeah. It's got so many pages, but I kind of assume that they really wanna they really wanna kick ass, you know that, and they do. So um, I I do think that for me there's a because of my personality basically people pleaser. I I would mix praise with blame in about a three-to-two-part ratio. Right. Which, which isn't hard. I mean, there's, a, there's always something good to say. So I think you say, this is going to kick, this is going to be really wonderful, and here's how I think you can make it faster. Right. So I do a lot. Just you say
4: to, how we can make it fa- go faster. Often,
0: not always faster, but but faster or have more cause and effect is often right, something that right. I... And I think if you couch that in the, in the language, not that it's bad, but that you're going to break more hearts if you make it faster or you make it more... But the big thing is, I think you have to demonstrate by by cutting, by editing on the page. So I do a lot of real close line edits, And then I just say, you know, first of all, this is just my opinion. And I have a very weird, obsessive way of working that is totally not the way that everybody works. But if 20% of this approach would help you, let's try it. Take a run at it. Make the cuts and see if your voice is actually underneath that. You know, my thing is that if you imagine... Anybody in this room who got a special dispensation to work out really hard for five months with a great trainer, well, you'd still have your same body type, but you'd have this amazing, you know, sort of rarefication of that body type. Right. That's what I think you can do with editing often by cutting, sometimes by other means. But I think that's the goal is to, with our students, what we want to do, they're already great. We just read 650 applications for six places. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not talking about being good. We're talking about trying to get them to do the one thing that they can do that nobody else can do. So often that extreme editing is at least one approach. Now you do a different extreme thing with them and John and Arthur, you know. But but for me, that's kind of what I can offer is that, it's an, yeah. engin- it's an engineer's logic, actually, what it is, because I used to be an engineer. so
4: yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I like to do a lot of cutting. I don't like to do rewriting sentences for I just sort of say, this isn't working. I do this really mean thing, I've been told it's mean, but I didn't realize it was mean. Danny, you can tell me it's mean where <laughs> I was like, say in the corner, I think it's encouraging. I was like, I know you can do better than this. Is <laughs> yeah, that that's, mean? That's, that's, it's kind of mean. No, that. But is, I think I mean, it's kind of like, I actually mean that, right? Yeah. Okay. So well, when
0: I was at Syracuse, you know, a lot of times it would just be, our teachers were really good with just body language. And you'd bring a story in and they'd just be like. <laughs> And that was, I mean, you kind of knew that that, you know, that was, or or there'd be just a couple notes in the, in the, so I think a a writer who gets to that level, you almost, in truth, all you have to say is, you know, why don't you try it again? And then they would do it better, you know, but.
4: Well, I remember you talking about the great story, Victory Lap, one of my favorite stories of yours, which is the first story in this collection. And you said that you tried different endings and you're famous for saying a good ending is stopping without sucking I think it's yeah. something like that yeah. and then you've also said to students because everything you say gets cycled around and maybe oh, it gets God. distorted Oof. you said I'm that was a good one you know. if
0: the
4: end doesn't if the end doesn't work it, the problem is probably well before the end yes so yes.
0: You know, we, I, and I learned that by, I, I was teaching a Vonnegut story. It's the one where everybody gets a handicap. I can't remember the name. Yeah, there, yeah,
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Harrison Bergeron. That that, a- yeah,
0: Harrison Bergeron. So I, I was teaching some sophomores and I just quickly photocopied this uh, a version of it and then handed it out and then read it before class. And I'm like, That's, there seems to be something missing. I don't, I don't remember it ending there, you know. So I got another anthology down and it turns out that the first anthology had left off the last page. So I'm screwed, except then I realized it was a teaching moment, ha-ha. But, right. but, I, I, but I went in and I, I, said, I said, now, I uh, purposely, <laughs> you know, <laughs> left out the last page. So I want all of you to supply that last page. And, and these were a freshman or sophomore. And they weren't particularly, they weren't really writers. They were just, and, and then we read them aloud. And every kid who read, seven or eight of them, nailed the ending. In a slightly different way. Sometimes, the, you know, the, the language wasn't good, but the structure, the, the plot was good. Right. So I thought the thing was that, you know, if you buy into that metaphor that you, in telling a story, you're throwing a bunch of bowling pins in the air. Okay. Then really, I mean, Vonnegut did a great job of throwing those pins up and everybody knew what the pins were, even those freshmen. Right. So they just had to catch them. Right. And it didn't really even matter the order. You know, everybody, every writer gets hung up. I can't do endings. Yeah, of course, that's the hardest thing. Right. But if you have an ending that won't budge, there's no way you can lyrical yourself out of it. I mean, you can't lyrical. Like, uh, you know, there's like nothing at stake. And suddenly the leaves began to blow with a fury that was unprecedented in Jeff's life. You know, sorry, it's still stupid. You know, you can't. Right. So so then you have, so the, the thing is to take the pressure off yourself, you go to the middle and for sure you made some kind of little logical error. Because you know what I think is, if, if you have done your job right, and this is why I get obsessive, if I'm telling you a story, at every step along the way I say, and then he did this, and I look at you and you go, yeah, i do that, yeah, okay, come on, let's go. Next thing, da-da-da-da, and then he thought this. And you go, yeah, that's what I would think. So if you can build a logic so that there's nothing sort of irregular happening by the end, when you're standing on a cliff, we're already Siamese twins and you have already missed all the exit ramps. And if I jump, you have to jump, you know? Right. So that's where, if, if the ending is messed up, it means something in the middle, there was a failure of integrity or, or something so that your relationship with the reader got interfered with. I think that's true. For me, yeah. for me. Yeah, no, you know? that makes
4: total sense. That's great. Um, all right, I have to ask, last time we talked about um, the president, but we're not gonna talk about the president tonight. But I wanna know, <laughs> we're not gonna say his name, but why, why is it important to write and read fiction now?
0: Yeah. Because to, uh, to me, I, and I never believed this as much as I do now, we devalued it. I'm, I'm almost six years old. We've devalued art my whole life. Yeah. And I know that because of my own feelings about it as I grew up. I love this, but it's weird. I love this and nobody likes it, you know? Right. I love this, but I should do something more mainstream. Uh, so I think we devalued language and writing. Uh, we treat it as a kind of a quirky sideshow with berets, you know. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's the primary human activity. To tell a story, you're doing it every freaking instant of your life. And depending on how well you do it, you're smarter. And, and because those stories you're making up always involve other people, mm-hmm. it's a moral practice. And right. if you're good at it, you imagine in three dimensions and you imagine in different possibilities. And it's that person is actually just you in a different manifestation. If you do it shittily, then you are on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're, I mean, yeah. you know, you're, yeah. You're, yeah. You're, I mean, I don't mean, I, but, but I mean, really, you know, you're, you're today I was at the, the hotel and I'm just got off the plane from California. And as a guy, uh, there's a face off, there's the, the desk clerk and this guy. And the guy is saying, he said, I've been coming in here 10 years. You've worked here for fucking months. And you give me that shit, ho- I've been in this hotel. I know how, that small, how small that room is. Why are you being so obnoxious? I'm like, wow, that's a case of limited projection. Right. You know, he couldn't imagine that that guy behind there was an actual human being. So I, th- I think it's really important. And those of us who are here in Brooklyn talking about writing should, you know, throw down on the fact that we got in this sorry mess because we didn't believe in language enough and imagination enough. That's why.
4: I agree. Yeah. And I think I like the idea of it being a moral practice. I think that's really beautiful. And um, one of the things I love about the book is the characters in the book actually can climb inside one another and actually experience what it's like to be in somebody else's body. That's that's the kind of this like weird manifestation of empathy in the book, right? And it's really the most... I mean, you cannot... It's, it makes you cry so much to get to the point where the son and the father are in the same body. It's really the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful things I've ever would be nice?
0: Like when I, I was a Catholic in Chicago in the 60s, which was like super Catholicism. And the nuns would always, they were kind of like Jesus was a tough guy. <laughs> Jesus went down to the well and he talked to the prostitutes and he trashed the market. And he had this incredible superpower. Because, you know, if you trash a market... There's police, you know, and there's people, <laughs> and there's people who stalls you just trash. So, but they would say to us, I mean, at least what I picked up from them was that empathy and this kind of love is actually a superpower. And if you, you know, for the instance in our life, when we feel it, you're kind of invincible. You know exactly what to do. You know, when you, when you, when your heart goes out to somebody, there's no ambiguity. There's no unclarity about how to, how right. to act. So I think that's, you know, I, I mean, that's the goal anyway, you know, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But I want to ask you something though, and this is because yeah. I I was traveling all this year, and I just started writing in December again, and I've written like six pages of a story, and it feels really false to be talking about writing with that story at home because I, it's like typing. But would you have started a new book. Can you just tell me because I I can understand kind of writing one novel, with yeah. a lot with a lot of white space, but how do you make the turn from finishing one that you're you know beautiful book like this one? and then pivoting to do a whole different book. Does that take you days, weeks, months? It's a year. A year.
4: Yeah. yeah. What are you doing in that year? Are you planning? um, Writing some nonfiction things and taking a lot of notes. And then I start writing scenes. And usually when I get a voice, when I hear, whether it's in dialogue or whether it's in narration or whether it's in a consciousness, um, that character kind of leads me to situations. But I also just kind of get things I can't, what I do is when I'm taking notes, it's the things that you can't stop thinking about, right? There's a, there's a, there's actually this James Baldwin quote where he says, um, "You're writing what you don't want to write, but you can't help writing." Mm. And so if that's that weird combination of something that you that I'm resisting, and yet I'm compelled to, because there needs to be some discovery in it, and there needs to be some danger in it, it can't be too something I already know what I feel about, yeah. it has to be a little more dangerous to me. Like, it has to be something that's making me like, oh shit, I really am gonna get in trouble if I write that. Oh, oh. You know, so that's, to me, that's the risk. That risk is a sign of there's something there that you need to look into. Because I think if you're not writing to discover something, then why are you doing it, yeah. you know? So, so it's that weird sense of something that you can't stop thinking about, but that you also wish you could push away. At that point,
0: do you have a notion of, of what we would call plot? No. No. Good. I'm glad you. No. hear that. I don't
4: that. think I ever <laughs> have a notion of plot. Yeah. No, you haven't. Never. Yeah.
0: Ever. <laughs> I just saw this wonderful uh, documentary about Grace Paley by, I think her name is Lily Rifkin, who is a director. But in there, Grace Paley says, you know, the thing about write what you know, she said, no, write what you don't know about what you know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's, yes. Nice. that's
4: exactly right. Yeah. That's very good. Yeah. We need to do audience questions. I've been a bad moderator because no, no, I no. Went to, we went too long. So there should be a microphone being passed around if people want to ask questions. I I know we're not gonna say his name, but uh, the question I have for both of you in the current political climate, as someone who, um, I mean, first of all, your work's amazing. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of heart in it. And as
2: someone who tries to practice empathy, but has a lot of family members who are, shall we say, um, uh, they believe the lies, so to speak.
4: So how do you interact with people like that who in, In my case, I've known them my whole life, and I do feel what I believe is love for them, but also, like, complete shame. Like, how do you... Do you
0: have that in your life, in either of your lives, and how do you deal with that?
4: You wrote that great essay about the Trump voters in The New Yorker, right?
0: Yeah, I have a lot of people in my extended sphere that are that. that. And I, um, to be honest with you, I think... I'm trying to think of it novelistically. So if you had somebody... I mean, there's this percentage of people out there who believe in him and believe in the thing. So... You could say, they're dead to me, you know. But intellectually, that doesn't seem interesting. Like, if it it occurs in the world, then we should theoretically be interested in it. Now, I think where it gets tricky is, you know, you say you should have empathy. We often hear that as what Buddhists call idiot compassion, which is like somebody drives a spike through your head, and you're like, oh, thank you for the coat rack, you know. You know, the, the... so, so that's not it. I mean, that, that's enabling. I don't, so, and in the Buddhist traditions, you know, to be compassionate or kind, you could be really fierce. I mean, if a baby is going off a cliff, you grab that sucker by the diaper. And if you, you know, if it hurts a little, that's okay. Because you're, so I think partly it's, I, I, my thing is I, I want to be really curious about how we got to this moment. Because even if Trump leaves office tomorrow, we're still in that moment where 30% of the country can't talk to the rest of, of it. So I think that's what novelistic imagination is for, is to say, if a phenomenon exists in the world, it doesn't come without cause and effect. Can we trace it back and understand how it occurred? And, you know, I heard heard Zadie Smith say something really wonderful. I think her in-laws are conservatives in in the UK. But she said, basically, if you really think about it, there's no such thing as a solid human being. Every human being is hundreds of manifestations at once. So she says what she does with her in-laws is she just concentrates on the manifestations that she likes. He's a good grandparent. She's a good cook. They like her. So it's not that you would ignore the other things, but in order to maybe to sort of change the situation you would want to focus your positive energy on those things whereas what i hear a lot of is we liberals shrieking Angrily, and believe me, from what I saw at the Trump rallies, they shut that shit off right away, you know? Now maybe you could say, well, let them, you know? But I'm, my natural mode is to kind of try to get in there and poke it a little bit and persuade, you know? So I don't, in other words, I have no idea. I really, I really, I really yeah. Right after that Trump piece came out, I got a lot of letters, you know, a lot of fan mail. Uh, and this one woman said, of course, you know, your piece was arrogant and your typical elitist liberal, da-da-da-da, and I'm like, okay, dear madam, First of all, you insulted me three times in one sentence. You'll notice that I don't insult you even once in what I'm right. about to say. So, so she fires back, okay, okay, uh, you're kind of nice. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but um, she said, however, you do know that 50% of American Muslims are in favor of Sharia law. I'm like, dear, we're going to have a fight here. And so she said, no, no, it's on a website. <laughs> and so she sent me this link, and the link says 50% of American Muslims, and then the author is Nick. <laughs> you know? And in the banner thing, and then the article itself is about this really wonderful cleric in Houston who said that he thinks like most Christians, majority of American Muslims probably would put this, their spiritual obligations above their civic ones. Nothing about Sharia law. So it's a total mishmash, you know. And in the, in, the co- in the sort of feed column there, one of the headlines is Obama to deny food on election day, you know. So I go into English professor mode and I've spent like three hours Writing this, George. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe it was half an hour. Okay, but 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 I sent it back, and I'm waiting for the fight. And she said she says to me, "Dear Mrs. Saunders, I really appreciate your effort. I didn't realize the mistake I made. I'm going to try to be more careful in the future."
1: Oh. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But no, there's a comedian who says, "If I can change one mind, we're fucked." You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so so it's hopeless, pretty much. George, I heard you say in some talk that
2: when you're working at an office in writing that you considered yourself on a corporation grant for the arts. Yes. (laughs) And uh, I don't know, I'm a fellow recipient. And I I wanted to know, like, how did you deal with um, people constantly watching the screen
0: or uh, hearing your boss like two feet from you? Did you ever have the experience of, oh, yeah, this is hard
2: to focus. And like, what did you do?
0: Well, I worked at an office in Rochester, New York, and at that time I was using WordPerfect when I wrote Civil Warland, and there was a Shift-F3 function that would toggle the screens. So I I actually got my office mate to let me have the corner so it was like the maximum number of steps from the door. And then I just had this drill that I would internalize where I'd be working on the story and have this kind of gleeful look, and when someone came in, I'd hit Shift-F3 and sort of slump. Like, oh, you know... And, uh, and it were and actually, you know honestly, I thought it was kind of good because you know how if you if you ever get too much time to write, you kind of the urgency goes down, and you start researching stuff, you know, I should put warblers in my book, but all you know <laughs> and and this was like no that you there would be ten or fifteen minutes a day, you didn't know when they would come as I'm sure you know, then that had the effect of focusing the mind, you know? So I liked it, actually. And then it, the first book came out, and the, and suddenly the word got out in the office that I was writing there. And um, there was this one guy, and I had set the schedule up. We had to bill our hours. So I, I had, had to bill eight hours. So I billed eight hours, and I had 35 minutes before I had to run for the bus. That was my writing time. And it was legitimately mine, because I'd done the eight hours. So I'm starting, I'm writing, and this one guy, he saw that I was in the New Yorker, and he'd come in the doorway, and he'd go... Are you writing?" <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I am, John, yes, I am. Do You ever hear of Zane Grey? He was a great Western novelist, you know, this would be sort of everyday, but I think it can be, I mean, it's kind of a good fire under your ass, I think, maybe, you know, I mean, it also, if it goes on too long, it totally destroys you as a writer, and then, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That was uh... <laughs> That was a... Uh... I like to be an inspirational speaker, you know? <laughs>
4: We should have, we have just one more question I think time for one more question
3: George since you have mentioned teaching some of your students have written really great innovative works Christopher Boucher uh, Adam Levin you mentioned wanting to edit them down make them go faster and the instructions does read really quickly but it is a 1,000 pages. Did you? Did he work, shop that through your tutelage, and how yes. long would it have been?
0: It, no, he laughs, he jokes about it, because he gave it to me at 300, <laughs> and I told him to cut it down to 180. And so, <laughs> so, so really, I mean, the truth is, what I tell our students is, I'm going to just be such a pain in the ass, such a, you know, have a strong opinion about my method, I'm going to impose it on you. Allow that for a while, and then when I, we're done, we're done, and you do what you... Need to do. And Adam's got such a strong vision and he always knew what he wanted to do. So I think part of your job is to push on them. And if they don't relent, then they're correct, you know. But yeah. 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 All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. Happy to talk to you.
1: George Saunders, Dana Spiota, thank you so much for coming on the Talk House podcast. Big love to Murmur Theater and Community Bookstore for allowing us to record and share this
2: talk. Check out other episodes from this series, including Judd Apatow's talk with David Duchovny about Gary Shandling, as well as the recently revisited Jeff Tweedy, Abby Jacobson
1: talk, where they chat about Tweedy's book, Let's Go, So We Can Get Back. Today's show is recorded by our producer, Mark Shizumi with Eric Lemke and Justin Robowski. The talkhouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. Definitely check out our socials at TalkHouse across the board for some great pictures from today's talk, as well as a nonstop barrage of brilliant articles and podcasts. (laughs) Sell it, baby. This week's episode is dedicated to a man who knew how to use just the right words. Rest in peace to one of the all-time greats, John Prine. Till next week, I'm Elliot Einhorn. I'm Josh Modell. Peace. And Bardo's. Whoa.